welcome to Future Voices, a podcast dedicated to talking to people revolutionizing their fields. I'm Rachel Adams. And I'm Ida Smiley. This episode might be one of my favorite episodes so far because we're talking about everything that I love, food, the Middle East, and community. So Rachel, who are we talking to today? So today we are talking to Nihal Elwan. She's the owner and founder of Taipei, a social enterprise business and commissary kitchen. Taipei began around 2016 at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis. It started by Nihal hiring Syrian women to cook their traditional dishes and continues to provide employment opportunities to newcomers to Canada. Being a social enterprise, Nihal and the women working there, nicknamed the ladies, also find ways to give back to the community. Here's Rachel talking to Nihal. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Thanks. I'm well, thanks. So I guess I'll start with getting you to tell me a little bit about yourself and how you started Taipei. Okay. So in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, I started volunteering with uh, newcomer Syrian families uh, with a small organization that was providing information sessions to the family. So, you know, I would go do some interpretation and I started meeting families, you know, at the time they'd literally just arrived and and you know the kids weren't in school they were still in motels weren't assigned you know houses yet and it, it was really just sad and 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 you know everything was very new for them difficult to process the language barrier the culture was very different anyway so um my professional background was in international development um, so I worked quite a bit for a few years, for several years on gender and women's issues in the Middle East for various international organizations. And so, you know, working with women has always been my passion. Anyway, so fast forward a few years with the volunteering, I started thinking, you know, what can one do to help these newcomers? What can I do to support these newcomers? And it became very evident that, you know, these people are going to be here for quite some time, maybe forever. They need to live. They need to, you know, have a sustainable way of providing for themselves and their families. And then I was having a chat with one of my neighbors and I was talking about how absolutely amazing Syrian cuisine is and that, you know, in places like the Middle East, it's taken over the world. And, you know, when you say Syrian cuisine in the Middle East, it's synonymous with incredible and delicious and elaborate and all of this stuff anyway. So we came up with this idea of organizing a pop-up dinner. And I reached out to a few Syrian women and asked them if they want to cook for you know, a bunch of Canadians. We created a Facebook invite. That event was sold out, I think, within a couple of days. And so, you know, we repeated that. So we found a bigger hall, um, doubled the number of invitees. Again, the tickets disappeared in no time. And so, you know, we realized that People love the idea of supporting um, newcomer women uh, from Syria and the women themselves loved, you know, the interactions with the guests and loved cooking their home food and all of this stuff. And they, they had realized by then that, you know, they needed to get a job. All of the women we work with were housewives in their past life back home. So this was the first time ever for them to start thinking about being employed and yeah and then from that point forth you know Taipei grew you know with word of mouth so we launched Taipei as a catering service and then our team grew steadily 
you know, and we also launched a line of packaged products and I can go on and on so you can stop me anytime. <laughs> well, I read an article about your business online and I read that you didn't have a background in business or in food in preparing food. So what uh, made you decide to quit your other job and pursue Taipei full time? You know, I, 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 yes, I don't have a business background and I never had plans for a business here. It just happened very organically. Taipei happened very organically for me. You know, I, like I never had a business plan or any of these things. It just things developed, you know, I was volunteering and Taipei was a volunteering gig for me for quite some time. And then I think it got to a point where I had to kind of decide if I was going to give Taibe a full push so that these women do have a sustainable source of income, you know, um, and I realized that we can support and employ many more women if this, if this business grows. So I had to decide, do I want to do that or do I keep focusing on my job? But I think I became extremely passionate about uh, Taibe. It was my second baby practically. And so, you know, I decided to dive, you know, head in and again, no plan, just feeling that this was the right thing to do. And I'd also become sort of close with the ladies and their families. And I'm like, okay, so these people deserve an opportunity, you know, um, for somebody to help them overcome all these bar barriers to employment. And that was it, just pure passion and, and sort of uh, faith that this is going to work out somehow. And the women that are working with you um, in the kitchen and preparing the food, were they um, looking, actively looking to find jobs here before when they found um, the kitchen? Or was it just something that grew from that first, uh, those first couple of... Um... So for, the, for, the, for the older members of the team, so the ladies we started with, I think it grew or again, it just developed from that point. And again, I met some of these ladies literally maybe a month or two months after their arrival into Canada. So they were just settling in. Like I met ladies who like didn't know how to take the SkyTrain. They didn't know how to ride the bus. They, they really didn't know anything. They literally just arrived from, you know, wherever they were before, be it, you know, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, wherever. And so I don't think for some of them, I don't think they'd had time to sort of process and you know realize that they need a job but I think they did eventually of course once the things settled down a little bit and then for members who joined us later members of the team they would call and say listen I'm looking for a job can you find a job for me with Taibe so yeah so there's there's both and from what you've seen for from working with newcomers to Canada how important is it to have that kind of support network and community to um, help their transition into oh. becoming residents here? Oh, it's incredibly important, incredibly important. I, I, you know, I always like to remind people that there's a very big difference between being an immigrant, so choosing to leave your home country and having plans and saving up for it and, you know, finding people you can connect with in, in that new country and people who are literally forced to up and leave leaving their families, their belongings, everything they owned, just probably leaving with literally the clothes on their back or just one suitcase and not knowing where they're going to go and arrive, like coming into Canada once that door had opened 
things happen so quickly for them. For them, literally, uh, for many of them, they, for instance, they were in Egypt or Jordan. Somebody told them, hey, Canada is accept accepting refugees into Canada. They applied, and within three weeks to a month, they were here. So things happened so quickly, they didn't have, they didn't know anything about Canada, you know? So that support network was essential. Um, that hand-holding that needs to happen at the beginning is essential. Again, remember, people, these are not people who are planning on leaving. These are not people who speak the language. These are not people who know anything about the job market here. The culture is totally different. So imagine being thrown into that and just expect it, being expected to swim and thrive and flourish and find jobs and suddenly, you know, be totally integrated. It's, it's nearly impossible. And you do know? you think that it was therapeutic to be able to have that traumatic experience of displacement and be able to come here and cook food from where they came from and still oh, have I don't that think, connection. Oh, I don't think so. I know so. And I know, like I've heard it time and time again from the ladies we work with, that being in the kitchen, I think, has supported them through a lot of um, psychological distress. I mean, some of them would tell me, I now with the job, I have a reason to wake up and leave the house. You know, I have somewhere to go to where I connect with other people. And remember, the language barrier, not having anything to do, this can create isolation for people, you know? So unless she had a job to go to or somewhere to go to where she knew she would meet other folks, especially other ladies from her home country. Remember, the ladies we work with didn't know one another at the beginning. They developed friendships, very tight friendships, very strong bonds within the kitchen. And I have to say, you know, the, all of this stuff about food being um, an ultimate medium for connection. That's like, I didn't understand exactly what that meant, but seeing them together, food is an, like an integral part of the Syrian culture. Cooking is extremely important. And so for them, I would watch them for days and days and months and months comparing recipes as they're working, comparing recipes. And the ladies we work with come from different cities around Syria. So the way they execute different dishes can be very different. So for days and days, they would compare the recipes and, you know, argue over who cooks what better and, you know, which there's a more cumin or less cumin and all of these things. But that was a way for them to a, connect with one another and to kind of reminisce over their home country and almost share the experience that they all went through of displacement and loss and all of that stuff. So there would be tears and crying and memories and remembering and then laughing remembering good things so it's not just you know it was never just hey let's go there make some food and feed some people for them and i even remember like many times the woman would say listen i'm coming into the kitchen i don't want to charge i don't i don't want money i just want to come and talk with the other ladies that would happen time and time again or some of the ladies would say listen i if it's not her turn let's say or she doesn't i don't have anything for her to do she would say i'll just come and volunteer you know, I'll just come and do whatever, just because they want to come and connect with people that they share something with, you know? And do you think it's also been helpful to have such a successful um, reception from, can from Canadians, from people living in Vancouver to have, to come here and put everything into this food and have people really enjoy it? Like how, how does that facilitate uh, them feeling welcome in Canada. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the very first pop-up dinner that we had for Taibin, um, I remember very well, I had four ladies cooking in that dinner. We prepared a, an amazing menu and all, all of that stuff. And I remember the moment we opened the buffet for people to go eat, they all stood back with their backs against the wall and just sort of stood like this. 
waiting for the reaction, waiting to see, like they put all their hearts and their skills into this food. And there's, it was the first time for them interacting so closely with like 60 Canadians that they didn't know. So they just sort of stood back waiting. And then when they saw people loving the food and going up for seconds and all of that stuff, like the, 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 there was an incredible sense of relief and, and happiness and joy on their faces. And then from that point forth, the guests would always come up to them and, you know, again, our ladies don't or didn't speak English at the time, but the, the, the guests would come and hug them. Sometimes they would cry, you know, the guests would cry because they empathize so much with the plight of the Syrian people and the loss they know these ladies were, suffer, were suffered from. And so gradually they realized, they, they, they saw how empathetic and kind and welcoming Canadian folks were. And time and time again, you know, I would tell them, all of the dinner tickets sold out. People love the food. People love having you. All of these things, they didn't take, like they didn't know what to expect. They didn't take for granted. But gradually, the warmth and the welcoming they received from people here, I think it, 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 it really meant for them that this is it. They're welcome in this country. They're going to settle here. And that, you know, it's a welcoming, non-threatening place to be in. Mm -hmm, unlike, unlike a lot of family members of theirs who went to other countries throughout the world where things were different, where they faced racism and rejection and, and all of that stuff. So they know because they can compare their situation with others. And food is such a great way to foster community, of course. 100%, 100%. And with the pop-up dinners that we had, we always try to replicate dining experiences in the Middle East where you're not sitting, you know, with, you're not eating, uh, eating on your own. You're eating with a big group of your family members and neighbors and all of this stuff. That, that's how people eat traditionally in Syria and many places around the Middle East. We tried to replicate that. So we always insisted on having large tables, you know, for eight or 10 or 12, where people who didn't know each other, guests who didn't know each other could come and sit and chat. And always we would have people coming up to us saying, hey, we made a friend in your last pop-up dinner. We want to go back to the next dinner with that friend. So yeah, it became that food. And those buffets and those dinners became a way for not only for the ladies to connect with Canadians, but they also became a way for folks to meet and make friendships. And that's a beautiful thing. It is. It really is. And you uh, describe your business as a social enterprise um, with helping out with the Fort McMurray fires and now yeah. with the COVID relief. Could you tell me a little bit about those programs and why that's important to you? Like I said, so Taipei started. I never had plans to set up a business or anything like that. For me, um, the social enterprise model where you're driven by a social cause and your objectives are to support the most vulnerable members of society, that, that is key. I, 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 I am not one to think about business in sort of profits, margins, you know, let's just crush, you know, crush it and crush the workers or just, Jack up the price. This is not how we do things. And honestly, you know, the work, the people we work with are not these kinds of folks. You know what I mean? We wanted our value to be, our values to be transmitted through the work that we do and the way in which we conduct business. That's always been sort of the umbrella value of everything we do. And so, you know, we're a, we're a very small business, but whenever we feel that there's something we can contribute to where we can support, 
we always feel the need to do that. So with Fort McMurray, of course, we donated um, some funds to support the fire there. And it's, it's not always instigated by myself. Oftentimes the ladies in the kitchen will come and say, oh, have you heard of such and such? What can we do? And so on. And the same thing happened um, with the meal program that we organized. We got um, some very generous funding from Van City. And so and that was amazing. And that happened sort of at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. And I had a conversation with uh, Van City and we got calls after calls from people telling us that there's so much food insecurity with the job losses, people really couldn't afford to eat at a point in time. And so we had a conversation with Van City and said, listen, we have a team that can provide delicious, healthy, nutritious meals. And so we got these funds and really, I think it was a joy for the ladies to know that they're preparing 500 meals per week or however many it was, and we were distributing them to different uh, organizations and outlets. And it felt good. That was the right thing to do, especially again at the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, Serb and all of these things hadn't happened and people were suffering. So, yeah. It's a really great full circle moment when, you know, you have these ladies who came into Canada with a need to be, to have some support. And then years later, all of a sudden yep. they're now- supporting. They are giving back. Yeah. Exactly. They are giving back and, you know, they'll always say things like, oh, you know, Trudeau and the government, you know, we will never forget what they've done for us. And that sort of, in their very sort of simple emotional way, they remember that they were basically rescued and given another chance for them and their children to flourish here. And so whenever there's an opportunity to give back, they feel like this is the right thing to do. We feel like it's the right thing to do. We've gotten so much support and I don't mean financial support necessarily I'm talking about emotional support you know people saying oh I don't know anything about Syrian cuisine but let me just give this a try anyway or yeah I'm gonna attend that pop-up dinner not even knowing what they're gonna eat it's just to support these newcomers into Canada and that is beautiful you it know really is, yeah. yeah and people in Vancouver they love their food they are they they do they're foodies they love good food and yeah, they know good food when they see it. And again, I, I, I always say, you know, I don't know if Taipei would have taken off as well in many, most other cities around the world, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's really a unique opportunity being in Canada and being in Vancouver. And speaking of food, let's get into the Syrian food itself. So what, <laughs> what makes Syrian food distinct from other cuisines in the region? So traditionally, Syria, Syrian cities um, were always culinary capitals in the region. You know, cities like Damascus and Aleppo and Latakia, they've always produced very elaborate recipes. And historically, folks would travel from all over the Middle East to go to these cities, learn about food and then take them back to their countries and adapt the recipes and so on. And also remember that Syria is sort of on the Silk Road, and it's a meeting point for different kinds of cuisines that have traveled into this country. You know, Persian food has gone into, has had influences in Syrian food. Indian food has had influences in Syrian food. You know, sort of like the, the food of the Levant has been, has emerged from Syria and this area. And so it is almost like a melting pot of different cuisines, and they have taken influences from different regions around the world. and 
and translated that into beautiful and exquisite recipes. Now, if you remember also, Syria was under embargo for many, many, many years, so they couldn't import a lot of stuff. So they've had to grow everything, everything. They've had to learn to use everything that, you know, that they can grow or, you know, uh, all of this stuff. So their recipes are extremely elaborate. They're very seasonal. They always use fresh ingredients because whatever they grow and plant, they, they would use at the time. And it's also a very uh, slow cuisine. Like the, the way the ladies cook in our kitchen is always very slow, very elaborate. And there's this concept that exists in, 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 in Arabic, but especially the Syrian ladies talk about it called the, the, the nafas or the breath, you know, the breath that you bring into your food. And so that means, you know, you can have that exact same recipe, but if you're not in a good mood and you're not happy and you're not taking your time with this recipe, it's never going to turn out as good as when you're happy in a good mood and you're cooking with passion in this meal. Your breath is good when you are sort of in a good mood. And so, you know, they always say, you know, we have to be in a good mood you know, we have to, we leave all of our problems outside coming into the kitchen because we're cooking for people. We imagine cooking for our families when we cook, even for folks that we don't know. You know, you have to put in the best breath in, in, in this food. So it's very elaborate. They take their time with it. It's not like a fast food where you just, hey, fry, you know, just, it's not, it's nothing like that. So, yeah. What are, what, so in that, Line, what are some of the key ingredients? Like you couldn't make Syrian food without these ingredients. Ooh. Olive oil, for sure. Um, parsley. Lemon. Tom tomato. Chickpeas. How, how many? I can keep going. How <laughs> many are you looking for? Bulgur wheat definitely is an essential ingredient in many dishes um but definitely lots of lots of lots of greens lots of vegetables because there's a whole range of um but whenever people think about syrian food or traditional like middle eastern food i think they always associate it just with like beef and 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 meats and stuff but there's a huge range of vegan and vegetarian food uh, that people ne don't necessarily talk about all the time. So things like chickpeas and lentils and, and bulgur and rice, uh, vegetables, tomato, parsley, lemon, you know, the fantastic trio. Um, all of these things are, are essential. Pomegranate molasses goes in so many things as well. And pomegranates themselves whenever they're available also. So yeah, these are some essential ingredients. And if you could name just a couple dishes to recommend to people who have never had Syrian food before, what would those be? Oh my gosh. Kibbe. <laughs> Kibbe, for sure. Kibbe. Uh, the shish tauk, that's the sort of uh, grilled chicken. Um, the, they have an insane variety of dips, you know, that are amazing, like the smoked eggplant dip, a sweet red pepper dip. Of course, a million kinds of hummus. Uh, I would say always the salads. The salads are incredible. Uh, it's a very healthy, healthy cuisine. I'll, I'll say that. So all the salads, all the dips, all the sort of light stuff is, is a must try. 
It's making me very hungry. Uh, what is, what would you say your favorite dishes? Or oh one God. of your favorite dishes? <laughs> uh, Jimmy, I, I have to think about that. Mm, can, I, can I say a few? Absolutely. So the smoked eggplant dip is something I cannot get enough of. It's, it's incredible, the stuff they can do with eggplant. Uh, so the smoked eggplant dip is something I love. The beet, beet tabbouleh, so this is sort of a twist on the traditional tabbouleh. Instead of having tomato in it, you have beets. So the flavor is just exquisite. I love that. Like I, I could eat that salad um, all day. And um, uh, again, I would say the shish. I, I love that chicken. So it's just a, a, a an overnight marinated chicken, which is amazing. Um, I would say that. And then um, I personally like um, a, a traditional dish made out of rice and lentils and caramelized onions called mujaddara. Um, I can spell that in an email if you want, but I, I love that too. It's just simple, very satisfying, and um, delicious. Okay. Well, those, those are all the questions I have. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you Thank so you. much, Nihal, for sharing the Thai Bay story. That was excellent article. to listen to. We can't wait to attend a pop-up dinner one day soon. I'm curious for you, like she was saying, the region is so connected and there was uh, a lot of movement throughout history, like coming from your Persian roots. Like, what did you think of the concepts and the food that she was talking about? Yeah, this whole episode really made me think of home, actually. It really made me think of Iran. It was so relatable, a lot of what she talked about, especially the ladies. I have such a large extended family. There's a lot of aunts in my family and food is such a center of showing love and it's how we celebrate it's how we come together um, and there's always that exchange of recipes there's different cooking styles in different regions so the way that she was talking about that how it's the same thing in syria it's exactly like that in iran iran is such a long history so throughout that tradition there's been so many different styles of cooking different ingredients of using in different regions um, for example where my dad grew up, they are known for a certain type of oil that's really predominant in their cooking. Whereas in a lot of rest of Iran, they use a lot more olive oil. And I'm cur also curious, like you mentioned, you have a big family and I love like when she was talking about how the ladies in the kitchen first started cooking together, they would be like, oh, how much cumin should we put in? Like, no, it's this much parsley, not this much parsley. And like, they had to tailor, you know, these very personal recipes that like, of course, like each like woman in the family, like each patriarch probably has like, this is how, it's like Italians, like this is how spaghetti is made. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, is it similar when, and then everyone is of course like, no, my grandmother makes the best like this. Like, yeah. is it kind of like that when your family gets together, when they're all in the kitchen? Is it kind of like a battle? Not really a battle, but like, like how can you relate to that with your family? Oh yeah. I mean, I, oh yeah, big time like that. It's super relatable just because <laughs> there's so many strong personalities in my family. I definitely notice that a lot with the women in our family that especially it's quite cool because we have um, some of the uncles married non-Iranian women. So like Greek women or Italian women, and they have now learned how to cook Persian food as well. So there's their styles and it's delicious. Like all of, I find Honestly, all of them in our family are such good cooks. It's always delicious, but um, it's instead of it being a battle of who does it better, it's always like, oh, this aunt does that dish good, and then this aunt does that dish good, and like my so, like the potlucks must be the best wherever. Oh yeah, their A game. Yeah, and 
I mean, fat, like there's always so much food. I think that's always the way of showing kind of potluck style, like showing um, your generosity is like, look at all this food I've prepared for you. And here's also Tupperwares where you can take now home too. And, you know, now you have food for like the rest of the week as well. Like it's always, it's not small dishes ever. It's like to feed masses. <laughs> and do you have like that, you know, there's that like stereotype of like the greek grandmother being like you have to eat more or like you know people's grand yeah. I, guess, I guess not just like one culture but everyone's grandmother is like eat more like you haven't eaten enough like was that a thing at your family oh gathering? yeah and you're like i'm sorry i'm so full the portions that you are given i'm like anytime i go to my grandma's house it's a huge amount of rice and then a huge amount of stew that it's like laughable i'm like no please like i'll, I'll take the rest to go but like i can't you know what, that's funny, actually, because when I was traveling in Vietnam, like these really rural areas, we would do homestays. And the like older women would always do the same thing to me. They would always just be like, m- like wanting me to eat even more food. And like, I have a pretty big appetite. But at a certain point, I was like, I, I'm so sorry, I don't want to be rude. But like, I've had so much rice or noodles or something. And you're like, I can't eat anymore. And you know what, like, uh, for when I, when I was in Vietnam, it was like, we didn't speak the same language, but like kind of going back to what you were saying before and what Nihal was talking about with the concept of nafas and I made this food and I'm like connecting with you through, you know, you're staying in my home and here's my, here's the food. I want you to enjoy it. And I think that's also like really beautiful and what happened with the first pop-up dinners with them, these ladies being like she was saying displaced and being like just thrown into a new culture and then making their traditional food and it is so personal it's like oh I'm sure they were thinking like what if these people don't enjoy the food and the fact that you know the diners were hugging them and like loving the food I'm sure like it was just maybe a huge sigh of relief yeah I thought that was beautiful and it is exactly like what Nihal was saying. They've come from a place where they've experienced so much racism and rejection. So to come into a new country where everything is unfamiliar, but to be hugged or have people crying because they love your food so much, that is so touching. Like just listening to her tell that story really made me feel emotional. And I can imagine, you know, having a family that has over time integrated into society, but I can really imagine how that must be difficult to first arrive and figure out, okay, I need sustainable income for my family. I also need to make sure that I understand this culture that I'm now living in. Um, And the concept of nefas is so beautiful um, to, you know, to be, to say, I'm going to leave all my issues behind because I'm cooking for people and I want them to experience the love in this food. I want to taste good. Um, And there, there are stories that you hear of how, you know, this woman was really upset and was crying and she made this bowl of noodles for her family and the whole family got felt really sick after. So you hear like these old tales like that of how it is important to be cooking for even for yourself, not just for other people to be cooking deliberately, slowly enjoy that cooking process. Um, You know, look at the foods and think about how amazing it is that we do have all these access to these foods. I think when you're cooking like that, it automatically just makes it taste better too. Yeah, there was, there was always talks about, you know, how it's so important to cook either nafas, people say love, people say soul. Maybe I feel like food's always a reason of bringing people together too. Um, 
and just a way of showing love to the people that you care about. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. And also like, I think it's just something we can bring into our own lives. Like I always, I really enjoy cooking. I'm always like trying to learn new cooking methods. Um, I don't always succeed, but I'm, you know, <laughs> I love to try new things. Um, and when you, I always feel so good when I have had like a stressful day, but you're like looking forward to cooking and then you go yeah. and you carefully, like even like the moment from like when I'm online and I'm searching for a recipe and then you get inspired. And then from the moment, like you're searching to for the recipe and then you go to the grocery store and you like carefully pick out the best produce from like that process to going home and like enjoying yourself, having a glass of wine while and listening to music while you cook, like the whole like process is just so enjoyable. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sometimes I find that, I mean, right now we're lucky to have the convenience of meal delivery, but when I use those services, sometimes it's not the same. So I'm like, I, I want like the freshness of cooking my something at home and it's warm and I made it and I selected the ingredients. I know when it went into this food. Um, I think there's something really special about that. And exactly like what you said, that whole process behind finding inspiration for a meal, then going out and looking at the different ingredients to make that meal. And that's something that um, I really appreciate about the Middle East. And like Nihal was saying too, there is such seasonality in the way that they eat. Everything is really fresh. You do eat what's in season. You are finding it hopefully local. I think to be able to take that concept and use it at home of, you know, shopping local, eating what's in season, wherever you live, um, knowing where your food comes from, that always just adds to the quality and the taste as well. Yeah, I think eating seasonally is such a lost art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, it's wonderful to be exposed to so many different cultures, to be able to attend, for example, like pop-up dinners that Thai Bay does or go to restaurants and try their foods too. Um, but there's another part that's also very special to be able to either cook for yourself or cook for people that you love um, and bring in that creativity into it, like finding the inspiration, then exploring ingredients. It is such a creative process as well that in our day-to-day, you know, sometimes we don't get a lot of opportunities to exercise our creative freedom. Cooking is one that you can every day. And um, I find that quite liberating. Thanks again to Nihal and the ladies at Taipei. You can find them at taipei.com. That's T-A-Y-Y-B-E-H.com. And on Instagram at taipei.syrian. You can find us on Instagram at Future Voices Co., And you can listen to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast streaming platform. Thanks for listening.